So a way to build confidence, if the planner can listen to the cues of the client that's there, but also the interest of the family, kind of maybe legacy goals, perhaps illustrate community involvement, could have those younger people go out and do a lot of pro bono. They learn how to speak in public. They learn how to listen. They face clients directly who may have gone through challenges. It also ended the basic budgeting. That would show that linkage, that it's not all about the high net worth. It's not all about the high math, but that kind of connectivity in the community setting. And again, to that extended family, because so many professionals want that continuity of clients for life, but it's not just the generation sitting in front of them. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Brent Neiser, host and CEO of What's Next with Money. How are you, my friend? How I am you great, Matt. Thanks for having me. Super to be this here. Is, uh, this is a great... I'm excited about this conversation. I think it's super interesting what you've been able to do, and you've got so much insight building kind of a digital brand, leveraging different digital mediums, and also you know, your ability to break down complex topics. I think it's so necessary in this space, and I, I want to dive into... All of that, and we will in some form or fashion uh, in my own rabbit hole way. Uh, (laughs) But before we do, I always like to get to know the guests a little bit more. And so I always like to ask, what did the the 13-year-old Brent Neiser want to be when he grew up? 13-year-old wanted to be possibly an elected official focused on government. And then I morphed maybe a year after that towards social work. And very good. Basically, didn't do either. Although I did the elected part, I did run for city council and came shy by 60 votes. But I've been very involved in public affairs at the federal, state, and local level, continue to be to serve on boards, be very active in that space. So that's interesting, right? Public official and, you know, social work and navigating to helping people better understand financial concepts and better manage money and be better financially. Tell me more about that journey, how you went from wanting to be a public official to now helping on the financial side. Well, I went to college in Washington, D.C., so very involved at the federal level, George Washington University. Thought I would go to law school, but I got a fellowship with the Coro Foundation, that's C-O-R-O. They're right now three, used to be four sitting senators that went through that fellowship. It's a national public affairs focus. So you work in a city in all sectors for a year and you do individual projects. But I work with a labor union, a media company, political campaign, business, all those combined, and even a government agency, community groups. That got me so excited about the intersection of business with society, almost like corporate public affairs type focus. So I abandoned the law school concept, got an MBA. I worked for a state legislature in my home state in Kentucky for several years. An odd thing happened. My first assignment to staff a committee was business occupations and professions. And I thought, oh, how boring. I will never, ever use this. But then years later, after the MBA, I got turned on to personal finance. I've always been an active investor, kept with that focus. And I tried to discover, was there a profession or something related to personal? I didn't know what CFP, Certified Financial Planner, was, what financial planning was. But I met a couple of accomplished financial planners, and they happened to be in the fee-only lane at that time, and interviewed with them, 
started doing seminars at faith-based settings, still worked for the legislature, and uh, that became a focus. Eventually, I got a job with one of those firms out in Denver, and I did not realize that Denver, Colorado was really the birthplace of professional financial planning. And at one time, there were six institutions related to the profession headquartered in Denver. So that's kind of how I got started, even in a volunteer capacity. And it's another jury I'll talk about. Yeah, I mean, tell, well, dive more into that. I, I'm curious also on some of the similarities between kind of public office, et cetera, and financial planning. I, I think because I think that with both of them, you have to be understanding depth. You have to have depth of knowledge and you right. have to have a communication ability. You have to be able to communicate that without overcomplicating it, to your point. So I'm curious on, on some of these similarities between the two. And I would add, then you're in touch with people. You are mm. a human litmus paper. You hear the, the worries, the anxieties. And if you can link that to public policy and trends that we see in society at all those levels of government and where decisions are being made, I think the certified financial planner community, professionally broader, you're a CFA and a CPA, has a real stake in advocating and basically representing not only your client base, but the community base, because you hear stories of the relatives of clients. You hear the extended family or or friends or work colleagues. You have your ear to the ground when layoffs are coming or when certain sectors of business or industry are too frothy or they're hurting or they're, or they, you know, they're, they're under regulatory scrutiny. So I think the profession of financial planning advice in general has a, a real stake. So in my journey, the first thing I did in Denver working for that planning firm is I wanted to volunteer with one of those six institutions based in Denver. And that was the Institute of Certified Financial Planners, which was birthed out of the College for Financial Planning that started the CFP credential. And I, they never got back to me, and I kept bugging them. I said, well, they said, well we think we're going to hire you as our first government affairs director. We don't want you to volunteer. We want to pay you. And then eventually I became executive director. But back to that state legislative activity, business occupations and professions, I knew within moments framing you know, formats and, and the ways to frame approaches to public policy and regulatory policy dealing with securities, the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, but also the professional responsibility. Where does professional certification that is basically voluntary, that's a level above the base level of functional regulation, where does that go in? And at that time, this is in the late mid-80s, a lot of financial planning professionals were not even complying with the 40 Act of the Investment Advisors Act. They were not RIAs. And so we had to get through that. And then I worked with the SEC, NASA, which is the Association of State Securities Regulators, many other groups and allied professions like the CPAs, NAIC, the insurance commissioners, and others to really say, where does the CFP professionals, where do they fit into this? How do they get in compliance? And then eventually that tack toward what you and I talk about probably a lot of think about is the fiduciary focus, which happened much later. But the early days of financial planning were tough. Media pouncing on, you know, CFPs often being labeled 
with bad press because of something a broker dealer did and they weren't even involved, you know, and they and weren't even like 40 act registered. So uh, we we're worked through that. Plus there was consolidation in the designation world as well. Yeah. It, it's interesting how the industry gets, you know, it gets a bad rap for what it used to be. And, uh, right. and the, kind right. of the lens of what everybody views it through now is still, you know, we still have this stigma of the old way. And, right. and I think that it has changed drastically and it's more holistic than ever. And, and it's more accepting in, of all people, right? There's more opportunity right. for all people to get help and, and access to it. And, and part um, of that, we have the pro bono movement that's, you know, been embedded in many great professions for years. And you might say the financial advisory, financial planning profession is some of the leaders of the, the movement said this is the first new profession of the 20th or 21st century. You know, it's, it's very different. But the cool thing is it is holistic. It is listening to people at, you know, with their base fears and hopes and dreams. But it also has that best, hopefully, as we evolve, that best interest fiduciary standard that builds trust. But it does intersect with society so much. You know, I, I want to dive into this area of of simplifying or creating understandableness. I would use I make my own word up <laughs> like of, out of complicated topics. I think that that's what is is the challenge with wealth management in general and in planning is I think it's there's so it, it, there there's so much to it. It's not really people's desires. It's very complex. The The rule books are, are lengthy. There's multiple rule books that you have to move between. And there really isn't like an easy button necessarily. Like it, with the exception maybe if you're 401k where you just have money right. taken out and put in. But outside of that, you know, it, it's not really easy. And, you know, I think back to your legislative days is that Legislation is not really easy to understand either. No. It's really complex, right? Both, I just want both to sets have like different their own language. And yeah, and so how do you how do you help to distill that? What is the keys to making something like those two aspects, complex aspects, understandable? Well, I think I've had a lot of practice in this, and I think I'll just say it's really the three distinct audiences, and now perhaps a fourth of my YouTube channel. What's next with money? The first audience was. I guess the professionals themselves to let them know what the regulatory schematic was that they needed to comply with and what was out there and to help them understand the power of professional voluntary certification. So it's like the best of the free market in the professional choice area. You give the public more choice. And the wonderful thing about all the designations that I hold three that I am active on. One is corporate uh, directorship with the National Association of Corporate Directors. And you've got a couple. Um, these are higher level elective standards. And they also, in many ways, I know CPA is a bit state-based regulation, but in most cases, they're nationally recognized and they're global. In many ways, they have gone global. And this allows an entrepreneurial edge in all of them. They can reinvent themselves. Yes, they can adhere to core fundamental principles, but they're open to new ideas. They can fuse, not confuse, fuse knowledge, trends, policy, history, economic history is very important, behavioral finance, all the proclivities we have as humans, planners and clients alike to often gravitate perhaps toward the wrong thing. And when he said simplification, yes, 
behavioral finance, choice architecture, automatic enrollment, auto escalation, choice uh, default settings for if you didn't make a choice, something is placed there in your best interest. And then you have that inertia that just keeps you staying in there. And this is one of the great triumphs of access uh, is people after a year or two, they realize, oh my gosh, I saved this. I had no idea I was even doing it. And they get, they get shocked. So that's a good thing. So that first audience was the professionals, then moving very quickly. The next audience was the regulators and the legislative community. State professions are generally regulated on the state level, but in securities and the insurances, but in securities, it's, it's federal with a state cop on the beat component with state securities commissions. So I kind of worked with all those communities to kind of educate them what's going on. And that CFP and, and the allied professional designations were a voluntary choice above the framework, above the foundation of that regulation. And then when I left the Institute of Certified Financial Planners that became, through a merger, the Financial Planning Association, the FPA, also based in Denver, I moved to the National Endowment for Financial Education, was, was born out of the College for Financial Planning. It had literally an endowment to do public education about personal finance. So I'm, I'm explaining to the professionals, the regulators of all levels, and now the public, but then throughout all that, I'm talking to the media. And that helped me later with the YouTube channel. So it is that way of explaining and connecting and giving people con a lot of it. I think the beauty of this advisory profession is context, giving a container for people to hope and dream and recover from past wrongs and harms they may have suffered. As you were talking, I was jotting down each of those areas, and it seems that the ability, there's really... To create simplicity in a complex message, I'm going to use just another word, you need flexibility. Because you need to be able to be flexible of how you communicate to different verticals. Because one vertical may make sense to have it communicate X way, but another it doesn't, what that value prop to that individual or that group isn't necessary for another group. Yeah. And so and depth those, of understanding of your audience, it seems. Yeah, and part work. of it, where are the on-ramps would allow them to even begin to consider or hear you or that thing. And I had a lot of practice with this with the National Endowment for Financial Education. I'm, I'm just going to mention a couple. We did, I set up a hundred different collaborative initiatives in personal finance. And they were generally with the money that Nipi had and other money I raised through corporate sponsorships and even grants I got from other foundations. We were catalysts. We basically selected and I went out and knocked on the door of these groups. I identified national nonprofit organizations who had an audience of different age levels, different ethnicities, different experiences in life that would have at some point a need to understand personal finance on their terms with the issue they're faced with or with their background. And I'm just going to give you for your great audience, a few ideas of the American foundation for suicide prevention. Now, we didn't go out to prevent suicides, but it was like the suicide has occurred. What's going on with the widow or the widower, the mm -hmm. extended family? How do they discover 
and root out the personal finance story of the person that, that took themselves out, that killed themselves. The American Indian College Fund, which is like the United Negro College Fund, and I work with them too, to introduce personal finance with the Native American community. It's often community money. It's not personal money. And there's significant amounts of sharing from family to family and within a tribal setting. And our first project, and I still talk about this on my YouTube channel, is disaster preparedness and recovery. We did the first mm -hmm. personal finance prevention and recovery material for the American Red Cross. Later, FEMA joined in. And then the AICPA, this is beautiful interprofessional cooperation, their foundation jumped in and even amped it up. We've probably had five iterations of this. Uh, in May, I'm putting out a new video on disaster education around money. I already have two up on my channel. And then many others, the Boy Scouts of America, we reinvented the personal management merit badge, which is required for every Eagle Scout, and many other groups, National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, Problem Gambling, National Council on Problem Gambling. I've been in that area for almost 20 years, and the personal finance challenges to the family of the gambler, the person that has that gaming excessive interest, how do they survive and hang on to their money? Military families, many others. Again, we did a hundred of those. As I listen, I feel like, like we were talking about earlier, there's flexibility, you need to have a well-versed understanding, but you also, there's like this, it kind of reminds me when I talk to marketers, et cetera, about like having a niche. You have to be, you know, going yeah. to these different organizations and communicate with them. I'm curious from your your journey with this, if you think about financial planners today and how they communicate with families and clients, from your journey, what can they learn to be better and more effective at communicating and dealing with some of the complexities that go into financial planning? What are some things that they can do? Yes, we can talk about designations, and I, I love that idea of leveraging designations as a kind of a structure to uh, to those conversations. But is there any other avenues or any other tactics or, or skills that you've you've been able to learn that, that can be useful for the planner themselves? Well, I think in that setting, I mean, I know we've had new groups like there's an association of financial therapists. There are other, you know, that focus on the, you know, register. I know George Kinder real well, registered life planner, that kind of uh, money maturity idea, the seventh stage of money maturity. But I think listening is important, but also listening to cues about the extended family. So a way to build confidence and to actually, I think, and again, I'm, I'm an independent investor. I own a small real estate business, development business, and I have seen CFPs to get a second opinion for me. So I have been a client to check my biases, but I do pretty much my own planning for my family and the, and the charity philanthropy we do, charities we support. But if the planner can listen to the cues of the client that's there, but also the interest of the family, kind of maybe legacy goals, community involvement. There they can help solidify and connect their value, what they're providing to other members that are not sitting across from them. And then they can tell stories and show, perhaps illustrate pro bono community involvement. And I think for younger planners, paraprofessionals, folks that are interning, 
you know, a uh, professional could have those younger people go out and do a lot of pro bono. They learn how to speak in public. They learn how to listen. They face clients directly who may have gone through challenges. It also ended the basic budgeting. But that shows, that would show that linkage, that it's not, not all about the high net worth. It's not all about the high math and the probabilities or even some of the financial history but that kind of connectivity in the community setting, and again, to that extended family, because so many professionals want that continuity of clients for life, but it's not just the generation sitting in front of them. And I think that can, but showing community concern. And then we can also later talk a little more about public involvement. That doesn't mean the planner has to be an advocate, but the planner, to me, a CFP professional, CFA, CPA, they can bring a lot to the public discourse about local budgeting, you know, even our federal deficit, uh, the issue of the, their knowledge of financial history and how we've gone through cycles, what happens during a downturn, layoffs, people being non-diversified, not only in their portfolio, but their house, their spouse is tied to that same industry. If they own, obviously, company stock, they're probably not diversified, but impacts on their housing, even their even if they own rental properties, if you have big layoffs or some problem in an industry or a locale, that is like multiple compounding of hurt to those mm. to those folks. That kind of sensitivity at the micro level, that yeah. community relationship, but also on the policy level. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I I think that a that ability is so key as well. And I want to shift gears just for a second. I think we'll get back to this, but you've explored multiple different channels as well to get your message out there. And, and you've built up a digital brand. And you think about being able to relay concepts in a, in a, in a relatable way and to be able to do that at scale now, which has not been able to be done in the past, right? It's hard right. to do in the past. Now you're able yeah. to do it much, much easier and, and efficiently. What is the key that you found to building a digital brand from your perspective? Well, the, the origins of this, you know, t constantly talking to the media through all those roles I've had, even from back to the government role through the professional association, the Financial Education Foundation, but interacting with, and then I served as and was chair of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Federal Agency Consumer Advisory Board, and I did that for three years, a little over three years, and and partly during the pandemic. So I've had a lot of these kind of public settings where I'm talking and explaining, trying to build coalitions, trying to build consensus. So. What I wanted to do when I left employment, you know, I retired out and then did a kind of a part-time, uh, you know, extended little part-time activity at the National Endowment for Financial Education. I was preparing to build the YouTube channel, What's Next with Money? And I was unleashed. I did not have editorial over me because in all those settings, I had somebody above me that, you know, you got to talk the party line and you can't go too creative in your concepts. But now I had the freedom to, and, and it, I have in that channel, personal finance, money issues, future trends, and consumer policy or public policy. So I try, not in every episode, but I bring context with those kind of three kind of beacons uh, at my disposal. And then through the practice I've had of bringing different audiences in, 
talking about different issues and bringing also a lot of that context, I, I've been able to do that. And I have now nine playlist categories within the channel. And a couple of them that are very unusual for somebody that's a CFP would be closing wealth gaps. Those are some of my highest rated videos on retirement, housing, wealth gaps for kids. And I can bring in stuff about a 529 plan, but also baby bonds, child tax credits, saving programs that a lot of municipalities in some states have thought about for child savings for higher ed or matching money. And so that reaches out to uh, kind of a broader community, but it's, a, you know, it introduces the idea of saving and compound interest and also letting grandparents contribute. So those are the, some of the ideas that I can bring forward on the channel. Now I'll say one thing when I go to my YouTube conferences and I go to a group called FinCon, which is kind of the home of podcasters, bloggers, YouTubers, and authors is I am violating probably one of their core tenants. I am not niche. I am niched in the money space, but I'm kind of broad there. So I'm not like a budget guy. I'm not a credit guy. I'm not totally an investment advisor, stock portfolio focus, even though I have, but I have a big sub theme of wealth creation and ownership for the broader masses and how they can do it sometimes without owning a house, without real estate or with that. But I try to show so many on-ramps in that space. That's kind of a, an area of importance to me that I think also honors closing the wealth gap space. But I have many, I have video categories on disasters, real estate, the future of money, money actions, things like that. You have a heavy focus on YouTube. And I, I'm curious, you know, when you, the listeners here, we're all, as a community, we're all trying to figure out what's the best way to tell our story and, and tell it to as many people as possible. I'm curious from your experiences on the, on the, the marketing and content side, have you found outside of YouTube or maybe YouTube? I'm curious what led you to YouTube. Like, what, what have you found to be the best? medium or channel to communicate all this information and right. knowledge that you have. Have you had other experiences, whether Twitter or LinkedIn or wherever it may be, but you know, thinking about the individual that's wanting to get into the building stories and communicating digitally, where do they start and why? Yeah, for me, YouTube was the first choice. I've done a lot of television. I've done CNBC, uh, CNN, MSNBC, Today Show. I'm really comfortable with that space. And I also like to use props. And I have kind of a design secret. Uh, my dad was in advertising. My mother was an artist and a teacher. So I use props even to illustrate. And they're often within a mid-century modern motif. So I, even in my studio, I have a certain look and my logo also reflects that. I'm very big on LinkedIn as well. And there's some limited crossover between the two. What I'm doing right now before I make, you know, I could scrape the audio into podcasting. I have not done that yet. I've got a little tiny presence on Instagram. Don't really use Facebook for anything. I might put an occasional post up there. But YouTube's my focus. But it is within YouTube a journey. I'm now doing shorts, which are one minute or 15 second uh, programs. And I can kind of produce those myself. I do employ a video editor and uh, who also does the uh, videography. And I do batch shooting. I shoot 10 episodes in a day in my studio. And I, I drink a lot of throat coat tea when I do that, <laughs> but it seems to work for me. I script it. It's some of it's 
impromptu, but I use a teleprompter. A lot of people don't realize I am using a teleprompter on the uh, programs, but the scripts really kind of anchor the flow, anchor the points, and then I kind of I improvise off that. So here's what I want to do, Matt, a little later, and you're actually kind of good to that because of the conversation we're having. I do want to start bringing on guests. I know so many people in the public space, some of the great financial advisors around the country, media people that I could invite. And that is an area next to have guests on the program. So I'm still trying to exploit the channels within YouTube, the shorts. I shoot GoPro videos a lot now, bring those in as B-roll. I, I can do voiceover on that. But recently I was in Iceland with my sister. It was cold, but you know, did I, I shot an emergency operations center around an erupting volcano, you know, that's like destroying a community. And so I can use that. I'm going to use that in my disaster video that comes out in May. So those are ways I kind of bring the visual in more, but I'm, I'm going to focus on that. Probably not do podcasting for a while. My next challenge will be the interviewing format and may use a program called StreamYard for that. I know you use a different one. I love that. That's very interesting. And I think that the takeaway as well for advisors out there is just to get started somewhere, right? Just yeah, start building you gotta, content, find what Press record, you know, just yep. get going. <laughs> find what works for you. Well, I, I want to be cognizant of time as well. I want one more question that I want to wrap up with my traditional final questions is you know, you have such a verse knowledge of the space, given the associations and the research you do and the connections you have. I always like to ask, I'm always curious about the future. I think everybody is. But you have a finger on the pulse in a unique way that I think is different than a lot of other people because of your association with many groups. What is the future of our industry in your mind? Well, I think it's I think it's beyond I think fiduciary, we're heading toward that guiding light. More and more groups are, are getting on with that. We have the best interest standards for the brokerage community. So there is going to be kind of a coming together there. There's some tussling that always goes on with the insurance industry about best interests for annuitization, things like that, and disclosure. We've moved so far beyond compensation disagreements, you know, because now subscriptions are a, a real possibility, hourly fees, you know, beyond assets under management fees. So I think there's a lot of creativity in the compensation space. To me, the future is where the public can realize I need, you know, we have those public ads that I help pay for with my registration. You know, I need a CFP or let, you know, it's got to be a CFP. Well, there are many other great professionals, but what is causing them to say that? Is it that they've heard a testimony from a friend or neighbor who worked with an advisor? Is it somebody, is it a professional they heard in the media commenting on our fiscal health as a society, commenting on education issues, financial literacy standards in high schools and others for students, student debt, you know, the perverse incentives we have with educational institutions through federal incentives doling out all this money, but hardly any financial responsibility there and really no accountability back to the institution. I think it's got to be a combination of personal but public statements. We did at the Institute of Certified Financial Planners something called a personal economic summit. And this is where the pro bono, George Kinder and his uh, values-based education came up. 
and it and we we got on CNN. I mean, it was huge. It was in Washington. We had many senators and people from different parts, but it was a coming together of the CFP community and beyond that, the profession has a role in society. And I think we're going to see more of that. They can make those kind of public statements. For me, I go to the Warren Buffett meetings in Omaha occasionally, certainly catch them on Yahoo. When I can't get there in person, I do Morningstar. But I'm tied to, as you indicated, the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. I have one of my three master's degrees is in national security and public diplomacy. So I try to bring a global perspective. And again, some of the great ideas about financial literacy are happening in other countries. So, and and then we, we need to think about that. So I, I plug in a lot. And now with the high level and fiduciary being a corporate director certified through the National Association of Corporate Directors. So I try to have broad outreach. And then I've gone through two professional foresight training programs uh, with the Institute of the Future in Palo Alto, California and University of Houston in Texas. Yeah, I think I can see that vision. And I, I think we could probably talk about that that level of it and also just the digital side and, and breaking down concepts for a long time. But I, I want to be cognizant from a time standpoint as well. I'm curious from your side. I'm going to start with my two questions that I ask everybody. Right. I love to learn. I love to learn via reading books. And I'm sure you've, you, you have a, a thirst for knowledge as well and a, a constant curiosity about you. What's one book out there that you think everybody should read if they haven't? Or if they have, maybe it's a book to reread on their list. Yeah. I think, you know, if, if, if you think about the book to reread, I have, I have a few, but I'm going to give you one. And I reference so many books. And I try to reference the quotes and the ideas on each episode. But for me, this psychology of money, I keep going back and back. And, and, and it's, I use it in so many different settings. It distills a lot of our, you know, like Jason Zweig and others talk about the financial behavior, the way we're wired. But Morgan Hamsel really breaks it down in a beautiful way, gives just fantastic examples and ones for me that are so, the concepts are so quotable. And I've got all these Berkshire Hathaway, you know, Warren and Charlie books, and I've got original notes that I've used in programming. But Morgan kind of takes the essence of Berkshire Hathaway thinking, Warren Buffett long-term thinking, and breaks it down to how we can apply it and how it's harming sometimes clients or the general public if we don't think about that right. So that's my one recommendation. Yeah, you can't get enough of that book. That book is incredible. <laughs> Morgan Housel just he he has a he has a knack for helping people understand complex explaining. things. And I call it it would be the explainer in chief. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And we talked about a lot here on the podcast today. And I mean, there's so much more we could have talked about. But I'm curious if there's if you had to choose one piece of actionable advice to give to the listeners that they could implement today or tomorrow to better themselves, the firm, the industry, whatever it may be. What would that one piece of actionable advice be for them? Well, it's going to be in two parts, and one I'm going to reference off, one I've used for many, many years. Uh, it's called Live a Life That Demands an Explanation. And now for me, the son of an advertising executive and a, you know, and a teacher and an artist, I like to think real creatively. And I think that statement, Live a Life That Demands an Explanation, has kept me kind of unbound, untethered. I'm, t I'm, I'm locked into a lot of things. But I like to be, I like to flow. I like to kind of move 
back and forth horizontally and kind of move from, I'm, like you might say I'm like a sector traveler. I move from sector to sector. And, and planning and advice brings in so many disciplines. That's why it's so hard to like regulate because it covers so many things. Yes, we need functional regulation, but the art of planning and advice has to be more of that, I think, that voluntary professional certification. And then to lock the quote down, something I heard later, and it's from Warren Buffett, and, and perhaps it's Charlie, but I think it's Warren. He says, write your own obituary, then reverse engineer it. And I've lived that. I have done that through that, you know, living a life that demands an explanation. So it's fun. It keeps me curious, keeps me engaged and always looking for new. And my sister, I think, asked me the other day while we were in Iceland, you know, you run out of, I, I, I have so many ideas I can cover. It just, it, it grows once you get into that practice of, communicating. There's so many things you can say. That's incredible. I love that. The Buffett quote on the obituary is something that is impactful beyond measure. And, you know, Brent, I'm just super appreciative of what you're doing for the industry and, and taking time here with us and sharing your insights and knowledge. And I'm sure I'm, I'm excited to continue to follow your journey. And I'm sure others on the podcast are going to be wanting to follow and get in contact with you. So What's the best way for people to stay in touch and continue to follow you and your journey and, and work with you potentially? Well, go to YouTube. You can hit subscribe. It's What's Next With Money. Also, uh, I have a website, whatsnextwithmoney.com. Also, brentnizer.com. It's the same. I'm all over LinkedIn. Look for Brent Neiser on LinkedIn. And I would say what I produce on YouTube is very safe. I put in ways people can then select a financial planner because I'm not in practice. So I, it's all external, like it's awareness focused. If you can, I think you can pass it on to staff members in your firm, but also selectively to clients. It's a good orientation because I'm talking to that general public from a non-conflicted setting. I'm not looking to grab clients. I do get public speaking engagements from the channel and media interviews, but that's not going to bother you all. <laughs> not one bit, not one bit. Brent Neiser, really been a pleasure, my friend. Great to meet you. And uh, thank you again for taking time to join us here on Bridges the Gap. I hope you stay well, be well, and look forward to talking with you again here soon. Thank you, Matt. And thank you for the service you're doing through this podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 